Good afternoon. My name is Veronica Miller, and I'm a Departmental Analyst in the Community Engagement and Finance Division at the Michigan Department of Treasury. Thank you for joining us today for the 10th webinar in the COVID-19 Updates and Resources for Local Governments webinar series. Before I begin, I would like to go through a few details. Today's webinar has a chat feature. To open the chat, click on the chat button in the upper left-hand corner. You can use this feature to ask questions for the Q&A portion at the end of the webinar. Please only use the chat for asking questions to our presenters. There may be a lot of questions today. Please wait until the presenter is done with their presentation before asking questions about that topic, as many of your questions will be answered in the material being covered today. Please note that we will not be able to get to all of the questions asked, but we'll do our best to cover as many as possible. If you are receiving beeps during the presentation, we recommend keeping the chat window open to stop the beep notifications. Over the past several months, we have held webinars that have covered a diverse set of topics important to local governments. To view previous webinars and other resources, please visit Treasury's COVID webinar page. We will post the link in the chat box. Today's webinar will be recorded and emailed to all registrants within 24 hours including a copy of the PowerPoint slides. Both items will also be posted on the Michigan Department of Treasury's COVID-19 website. If you would like a copy of today's PowerPoint now to follow along during the presentation, a link has been posted in the chat box for you to download. After you exit the presentation today, you'll be asked to complete a survey. Please take the time to do so as this feedback is important to the continued development of these webinars. At this time, I would like to introduce our MC for today, Heather Frick. Ms. Frick is the Director of the Bureau of Local Government and School Services at the Michigan Department of Treasury. I will now turn it over to Heather. Thank you, Veronica. Good afternoon and welcome to the COVID-19 Updates and Resources for Local Government webinar series. My name is Heather Frick, and I am the Director of the Bureau of Local Government and School Services with the Michigan Department of Treasury. We are pleased to be able to collaborate with the Michigan Municipal League, the Michigan Association of Counties, and the Michigan Townships Association to host our 10th joint webinar of this series. Included in today's presentation is an update on the Michigan Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference and detailed information about single audits. It is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Eric Busis, Chief Economist and Director of the Office of Revenue and Tax Analysis at the Michigan Department of Treasury. Eric will start us off by providing a Michigan Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference update. I will turn it over to Eric at this time. Thanks, Heather. Um, it's certainly a pleasure to present uh, to this webinar. Again, I've, we've been a part of uh, many of the last few webinars, and uh, they're a great opportunity to connect with some of our local partners and discuss uh, some of the developments at the, the state level. So I'm going to be talking today about the uh, Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference that was held last Friday. So the Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference uh, happens regularly each year in January and May. Uh, the January conference that we just held really starts uh, by kicking off the budget cycle for the upcoming fiscal year. So the revenues that are agreed to by Treasury, the House Fiscal Agency, and Senate Fiscal Agency um, in this January conference become the basis for the governor's uh, executive budget recommendations that will be released in early February. Uh, then we'll come back uh, after the legislature has worked through some of the, the legislative process uh, and update the numbers in May before the fiscal 22 budget uh, is finalized. So um, certainly an important part of the state budget process and has a direct impact on um, the budget outlook and what will be coming in uh, both constitutional and rev uh, statutory revenue sharing. So at a very high level, um, at the conference last Friday, um, we heard from a variety of external economists and uh, economists from state government. Um, and there was certainly wide 
uh, agreement that uh, the COVID pandemic uh, has continued to drastically affect the economy and will likely do that for the next you know, two to three years. Um, we expect nationally to have a pretty slow recovery. Uh, specifically in Michigan, um, we've been hit harder from the recession, uh, but we've also seen a pretty rapid rebound uh, in both the manufacturing sector that was better than anticipated, um, as well as um, we expect that the national or the economic recovery will keep pace with the national growth. Um, however, we do expect the Michigan uh, recovery to take uh, three to four years to fully recover all of the jobs lost uh, during the pandemic. This next slide that I'm, uh, should be on your screen shows um, the, the growth coming out of the last recession in the number of jobs in both the United States and Michigan economy. Um, you can see that from you know, 2010 to 2010, 2020, uh, we gained about 15% uh, more jobs over that decade. So total employment grew by about 15%. At the national level, we lost all of those jobs, at least temporarily, um, in May. Um, in the Michigan economy, uh, we lost more jobs than what we gained uh, during the, the economic expansion. Uh, since the kind of bottom of the economic shutdown, uh, we have seen a pretty healthy rebound. But it's important to note that you know the national economy is about halfway back to where it was, uh, and the Michigan economy is about a third of the way back to the level of jobs we had in February. In terms of how we see the Michigan economy uh, recovering, um, we believe that through 2020, uh, the numbers aren't finalized yet, but the final numbers will likely show that we lost about 420,000 jobs uh, over the course of the calendar year, and that's on net. So that you know doesn't count um, that, or that includes the number of jobs that we gained back since the bottom of the recession. Uh, in the next three years, we expect modest growth, um, and adding in total over those next three years, 2021, 22, and 23, we expect to add about 300,000 jobs which will still leave us with a jobs deficit of about 100,000 jobs uh, when we start uh, 2024. In terms of state revenue, um, the, the forecast that we've done at the last few consensus conferences in terms of the economy have been uh, pretty close to actual uh, results. Uh, the economic forecasts have been uh, in line with what we've experienced. However, the revenue forecast continued to be uh, too low uh, and somewhat surprisingly so. Um, in the preliminary fiscal year 20 results, um, we've, we're on track to exceed our most recent forecast by about six, $760 million. Um, income tax withholding continues to be a, a very strong factor uh, for that growth as well as sales and use tax uh, are both higher than expected. Uh, particularly sales tax uh, is important for our local partners uh, as this is the basis for uh, much of the constitutional revenue and statutory revenue sharing um, that you'll receive. Um, now we're gonna spend the next couple slides on um, what's behind some of this uh, higher than expected collections in both income tax and sales and use tax. Uh, first, we're going to start with withholding. Uh, income tax withholding, this is uh, the largest source of revenue uh, from the income tax itself is you know, the withholding that's remitted uh, by employers for their employees. Um, one key aspect of that in Michigan is that um, unemployment benefits are taxable at the, the state level. Uh, and that has continued to prop up um, our state income tax collections. Uh, over fiscal year 2020, 
um, we've received uh, about 557 million that has come in income tax withholding on unemployment benefits that was remitted by the state's unemployment insurance agency. Um, that's over four times the level that we saw uh, during the, the last Great Recession, um, and that you know illustrates the number of people that we've had in the economy who have lost their jobs, but then also the additional benefits that have been uh, provided by the federal government in terms of the $600 per week uh, benefit on top of the state unemployment benefits, uh, as well as the broad base that receives that. Uh, not only the work share uh, participants, uh, and Michigan has one of the, the highest number of work share um, employees uh, in the nation, uh, as well as the expansion to contractors and sole proprietors that happened in 2020 that we haven't seen in previous years. Um, we expect that this will continue to be a, a strong boost in 2021 um, with the additional stimulus that was signed at the federal level in December. Um, we expect that this will continue to support withholding uh, and we project that about $200 million in income tax withholding will be received by the state in 2021. So it will certainly uh, drop from the levels we saw in 2020 unless there is more federal action. Um, but it will continue to be a strong uh, backstop for the state's income tax. Uh, one you know, important aspect to this for those municipalities that have a city income tax, uh, unemployment benefits, uh, as most of you know, uh, are not taxable in the city income tax. So although this is certainly propping up state withholding, um, the, the local city income tax does not uh, receive that, that support. In terms of total withholding, we've really seen a, a marked increase in the number of uh, dollars coming into the state, both from a stronger than expected unemployment benefits, but then also um, some of our larger industries and uh, larger sectors have continued to remit uh, at levels um, higher than what they have in previous recessions. So typically, income tax withholding at the state level mirrors our wage and salary income as measured by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Um, and that growth in those two economic measures typically goes hand in hand, but we really saw this depart in 2020, where we saw wage and salary income drop by 3.6%, uh, while our withholding had um, one of the largest uh, increases that we've seen uh, over the entire uh, economic expansion, which was fairly unexpected and led to some of the very positive uh, revenue revisions that we've seen in the last couple of consensus conferences. One other uh, key impact of the pandemic has been the change in consumer behavior, um, and that has led the state of Michigan to benefit quite a bit from income tax collections that have been increased from that shifting consumer spending. Um, typically, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen more and more uh, residents in Michigan spend money on services instead of taxable goods. So as a percentage of economic spending, people are spending more money on services as opposed to goods. And over the last 20 years, that's really caused our uh, sales tax collections to grow very slowly, and I know that the local government has seen that in constitutional revenue sharing. Uh, it has not grown and kept pace uh, with the growth in the economy. Uh, what we've seen over the last six months with the pandemic uh, is a very large shift since residents aren't able to spend on services at the levels they have. We've seen a, a huge increase in purchases of goods, specifically goods that are purchased online. Uh, we've seen over the last couple of years through the Wayfair Supreme Court decision and then also the Wayfair Marketplace, 
legislation, uh, increased ability for the state to capture some of these revenues. Um, but comparatively speaking to what we just saw with the pandemic, uh, those were rather small increases compared to the large shift that we've seen over the last six months. So in fiscal 19, we had about $175 million in sales and use that was collected from um, online shopping and mail order businesses. Uh, in fiscal 2020, that was about $493 million. Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've really seen a, a, just a giant leap in the level of sales and use tax collections from this online purchases. Um, prior to the pandemic, we were averaging about $17 million per month. Um, and after, you know, since the pandemic began, um, we've averaged about $65 million per month. Um, in putting that in terms of, you know, per capita spending, uh, for like the average family of four, um, that would translate to, uh, about $110 per family of four in online spending prior to the pandemic and about $440 per month, uh, in online spending, uh, since the pandemic. So this is something we're going to need to watch very closely as we forecast what's going to happen in the future because as the services uh, come back, we could see uh, sales tax decrease. In terms of total uh, revenue projections in the most recent conferences, um, we've seen continuing improvement uh, in both the collections on a monthly basis and the forecast that we make at the consensus conference. So as I mentioned, we have a conference every January and May. We also had a special conference this year in August. Um, you know, the January one, January 2020 was before the pandemic. Um, and we, um, you know, forecasted pretty modest growth at that time. Uh, through uh, the forecast horizon of 2022. Um, after the pandemic, we expected uh, general fund revenue to drop by about $2 billion each in 2020 and 2021. Uh, and because of that large federal stimulus and the shifting cons consumer behavior, we, we did not see much of a drop in 2020 revenue um, in the preliminary data. Um, we are expecting uh, growth to drop a little bit in 2021 and 2022, uh, but we're still much better than what we projected at the beginning of the pandemic. The same goes for the school aid fund revenue. Um, in January of 2020, we forecasted um, about $13.9 in uh school aid fund revenue in 2020. Um, you know, when we came in May after the pandemic began, we dropped that by about a billion uh, to reflect what we thought were going to be lower incomes and lower spending uh, because of the federal stimulus. Um, that in 2020 actually totaled about 14 billion. Uh, so to put that another way, um, the pandemic and all the federal stimulus that we had actually increased school aid fund revenue above what we expected prior to the pandemic, which is a pretty surprising result. Um, we don't expect that to uh, continue um, into 21 and 22. Uh, we expect pretty modest growth, um, but don't expect to be back at pre-pandemic levels. Um, in terms of you know total general fund and school aid fund, um, you know the one takeaway from from this slide I'd, I'd point out is that you know in 2019 we had about 24.7 billion. Um, as we look to the 2022 budget, um, we're expecting uh, revenue now to be about 500 million dollars above that in 2022. So. In total, uh, very small growth throughout the, the budget process, and we expect to see pretty tight budgets uh, throughout throughout the next couple of years. This last slide on on revenue uh, really just sum, sum, 
<coughs> summarizes uh, where we've been uh, over the last year in terms of our forecasts. You can see in 2020, um, in May, we forecasted a total drop of $3.2 billion. And because of the federal stimulus, that did not occur. Um, we really were pretty close to uh, pre-pandemic levels. In 21 and 22, um, we are expecting to see um, you know, net decreases in total revenue from what we forecasted prior to the pandemic, uh, and this will lead to pretty tight budgets over the next year. A couple other notes that came out of the, the consensus conference um, that will need to be discussed and understood by policymakers, so we wanted to address them here as well. Uh, in the 2015 roads package, there was a provision in the Income Tax Act that was added that uh, limited uh, state general fund revenue growth to a factor of inflation uh, and tied it to 2021 levels. Um, what we're seeing right now is that 2021 appears to be about the bottom of the economic recession in terms of state revenue collections. And as a result, as we grow out of that, this income tax trigger will likely uh, cut the state income tax, uh, and all of that cut needs to be absorbed under the, under the law by the general fund. So we forecast that in 2023, this will uh, lead to a rate reduction uh, starting January 1st, 2023, that will cost the general fund about $193 million. Um, and then in 2024, we'll see another rate cut that will cost the general fund about 439 million. So that's one uh, factor as we look toward the out years uh, of what to expect in the state budget, uh, that that uh, income tax trigger will continue to impact the trajectory of state spending. Uh, final slide, and I, we're running a little late on time, so I'll, I'll run through this pretty quickly and focus just on the tax revenue uh, forecast risks. Um, clearly, the path of the pandemic is going to drive, continue to drive state revenue. Um, under our forecast, we assume uh, current federal law. Um, so, to the extent that there is more stimulus, that could significantly increase uh, these numbers. Uh, specifically, uh, President-elect Biden has, you know, supported increasing, you know, additional stimulus payments and unemployment benefits. Uh, I would expect that to boost uh, sales tax significantly. What we saw in the last year is uh, somewhat different than other recessions and stimulus payments. Uh, in prior stimulus payments, uh, the majority of that money was either saved or used to pay down debt. Uh, what we saw in this uh, stimulus payment that we had in 2020 uh, was that most people spent it, and since they weren't able to spend it on services, they spent it on taxable goods. And you know, if that continued, um, we could see, you know, about 375 million in additional sales tax from from that stimulus payment, um, and even more from the uh, unemployment benefits. So, as we think about the trajectory for uh, revenue sharing at the constitutional level. Um, in what local units receive, um, we'd expect that, you know, any additional federal support would continue to boost uh, sales tax and local revenue sharing. With that, I will turn it back over to Heather. Thank you, Eric, for that detailed overview. Now I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Stephen Bland. Stephen is the Director of Governmental Audit Quality at Raymond. He'll be providing an overview of single audits. I will hand it over to Stephen to you at this time. All right, thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk about this important area. So our outline for the next few minutes is a quick overview of the uniform guidance and how that is applicable. We're gonna talk about when a single audit would be required and if it's required, what it entails and answer some questions about how you can prepare and make sure that you've got everything ready and able uh, to go forward with that. So the uniform guidance, uh, that's the short and easy to remember name for um, 
two CFR 200, the long name Uniform Administrative Requirements Cost Principles and Audit Requirements for Federal Awards. The uniform guidance, in short, is the set of federal regulations that are applicable anytime a non-federal entity uh, receives federal awards. That's going to apply to st the state government, to local governments, to tribal governments, colleges, universities, and nonprofits. So a, a fairly wide swath of organizations. If you're an organization that receives federal money, either directly from the federal government or more commonly passed through a, an entity like the state or possibly uh, passed through your county, then you're subject to the uniform guidance. So what exactly is in there? Well, there's a ton of requirements in the uniform guidance, and we could easily fill a multiple hour webinar going into detail. But the high level things that you need to be aware of uh, are on this slide. The first thing is you need to have a good financial management system, and that allows you to separately identify, track, and control each individual source of federal funds. So there can be a variety of different federal grants that an organization receives, and you need to have an accounting system that's able to separately track and keep, tra keep track of uh, those federal resources. So if you've got three grants, you need three different ways of doing that. The mechanics of that vary by local government. Uh, some local governments choose to use a separate special revenue fund for each grant. Some will keep everything together in one fund, but will use some kind of departmental accounting or some other system in their accounting system uh, to, to point off and keep track of uh, these numbers. School districts do it with a, a particular set of digits in the uniform chart of accounts. There's more than one right way to do it, but the important thing is the financial management system is designed so that at any point in time, you can run a report right out of your general ledger and see a specific federal grant when you need to. We don't want to be commingling multiple grants and having to sort through general ledger detail to sort them out. The next item is certain things need to be in writing, uh, written policies and procedures. Now, it's a best practice to have good, solid policies and procedures for a, a wide array of things. But at a minimum, the uniform guidance requires any recipient of federal grants to have written procedures for cash management, that is the process that you use for requesting reimbursement when you've expended federal funds, allowability of costs, that means a policy for how you're going to make sure you're only spending grant resources on eligible purposes, a, a written policy on procurement, which covers the process of when you'll uh, require bids, what's your process for comparing price quotes, obtaining appropriate information, and having a, a conflict of interest policy so that people who could economically benefit from purchasing decisions aren't the ones making those. And then finally, anytime a grant is going to be uh, paying for salaries or benefits, we need to have a written policy for compensation and benefits, basically your payroll policies and procedures. Now, the good news is most local governments already have a number of these policies in place even before receiving federal grants. Very common for there to be a policy on when to require bids for purchases or what the review and approval process is for, for getting checks out the door, um, what the, the payroll policies, those things tend to be there. The allowability of costs is one that is fairly focused and may be new to some folks. And so the need to have a policy on how do I know I'm spending money on eligible purposes and who's going to be responsible for staying up on those rules and, and reviewing things is certainly something that we have to watch for. As part of that, and those internal controls are part of a broader system, or those policies, I should say, are part of a broader system of internal control. And that needs to cover both financial reporting, normal good business practices that local governments follow for uh, internal control over financial reporting, and then also compliance with federal requirements, meaning anytime you accept federal awards, you're signing some sort of a document that says you promise to follow all the rules from that uh, funding source, we need to make sure that there are controls in place to provide you a reasonable chance of succeeding in that effort of following those rules. And then finally, and I put this at the end because it doesn't apply to everyone. The first three items apply to everyone. If you receive federal awards, you need a good uh, financial management system. You need written policies and procedures. You need robust internal controls. But some of you will also then require an annual single audit. So let's talk about what a single audit is and how that adds to these base requirements that apply to everybody. Well, a single audit is required in general for any fiscal year in which a non-federal entity, again, remember that includes local governments, colleges, universities, nonprofits, anytime a non-federal entity expends in a single fiscal year at least $750,000 of federal awards. Now, the thing to watch here is it matters when you've expended the funds, not when you receive them. 
that may be in the same period, or you may spend money first and get reimbursed later, or you may receive an advance up front and spend it afterwards. But it's expenditures that drives when a single audit's required. And it's based on your fiscal year, not the fiscal year of the entity that provided the funds. So if you're a June 30 fiscal year end, we'll look to what expenditures were incurred in that fiscal year for you. If you're a calendar year end, likewise. Now, it can be complicated by the fact that not everything that comes from a federal program is necessarily subject to single audit, though certainly most things are. It also gets complicated that money that's received from the state of Michigan may still be considered federal because of where it started. And the state will communicate to local governments when it's passing through federal funds. But the fact that you didn't get it straight from the federal government doesn't necessarily mean it's not federal. So three new programs this year, and really the reason we're on this COVID-19 related webinar talking about single audits, three new programs that were passed through the Michigan Department of Treasury that may uh, contribute to an organization expending at least $750,000 are the Coronavirus Relief Local Government Grants, that was the Revenue Sharing Replacement, the First Responder Hazard Pay Premium, and the Public Safety Public Health Payroll Reimbursement Program, the latter two, both of which uh, were items that uh, governments had to apply for and request that funding. So those are not the only three programs. Uh, a number of local governments receive other federal programs. Uh, a lot of you are already getting a single audit. But you have to add this program, these programs, into any other federal sources you have and ask the question, do you collectively add up to over 750000 And that could be including money from the state. It could be including money that was passed through from your county or from other sources as well in order to determine whether a single audit is required. So if you've determined that you have crossed that magic threshold for your current fiscal year, what all is involved? Well, you're already getting a financial statement audit, and that will continue. So a traditional financial statement audit uh, is still part of uh, the process. That audit now needs to be conducted in accordance with what's called government auditing standards. It's also referred to as the yellow book. Government auditing standards takes a regular financial statement audit. It adds some additional rules for the auditors, and it adds a little additional uh, reporting around potential internal control matters during an audit. Some of you may not be receiving a single audit normally, but are having your audit conducted in accordance with government auditing standards. Uh, for some of you, this may be new. In addition, if there is a single audit, the auditor has to identify and test one or more major programs. If the only money you receive that's federal is falls under one program, that one's obviously the major program. But many governments may receive five or 10 or 15 different grants, and the auditor will not necessarily test all of those. They'll go through and pick um, one or more major programs. And then those will be subjected to more rigorous compliance testing. The results of a single audit are uploaded to a federal uh, website that is publicly facing and searchable, and they'll continue to be uploaded to uh, Treasury's website the same way local government financial statements are today. So one question that's fair to ask is, I already have an auditor. Can I just have them do my single audit if one is required? And the answer is a, a very solid maybe. Um, single audits have to be conducted in accordance with government auditing standards, and only certain CPA firms go through the annual training necessary to conduct audits in accordance with government auditing standards in the single audit. Uh, the, the first thing to do is just ask uh, your auditor if they do single audits. If the answer is yes, they're already in the habit of doing single audits, you're probably fine. If for any reason your auditor is unable to do that because they, they don't keep up on the training or they choose not to conduct single audits, and you do need to look for a new firm, one option would be to go out to the AICPA's website, and they have a list of firms that participate in the Government Audit Quality Center. That's going to be CPA firms who have voluntarily held themselves to the high standards necessary to conduct single audits and to stay current on the necessary rules and training that goes along with that. If you're preparing for a single audit for the first time, uh, the, fir the first good news is lots of folks have been through this. You'll survive it too. Uh, you need to make sure that you've got policies and procedures developed. If you don't already, uh, getting that process rolling before the auditors come in is always a good thing. If you've not received federal awards prior to these three programs we just mentioned, uh, you may not have all of these areas documented. If you already have re been receiving federal awards, you may be in good shape. And another thing to consider is getting appropriate training for your staff uh, who are going to be preparing for their first single audit. The good news on that front is there are some great resources available. A number of professional organizations throughout Michigan provide this training routinely, 
And there's also a recorded event that was actually targeted directly to organizations who were going to be receiving their very first single audit because of CARES Act and COVID type matters put on by the AICPA's Government Audit Quality Center. There's a link here to that archived event that was held back in September, and you can uh, go and, and watch that training, get a, a copy of the materials, and, and learn a lot about ways to prepare for your first single audit if you need to there. So that is it for my prepared remarks. Do we have any questions you want us to tackle right now, or are we just going to go into the broader Q&A session? We'll go in the broader Q&A session. Sounds good. Thank you, Stephen. We will start our question and answer portion of the webinar um, today. First, I would like to introduce uh, Dina Bosworth, Director of Government Relations from the Michigan Association of Counties, Judy Allen, the Director of Government Relations for the Michigan Townships Association, and Chris Hackworth, Director of State and Federal Affairs for the Michigan Municipal League. Judy and Dina will begin with a few pre-submitted questions from attendees, and then Chris will pose any additional questions from today's chat bar. I will turn it over to Judy at this time for the first question. Thank you, Heather, and thank you everyone for being part of this. Uh, my first question is really directed to Eric, please, on the CARE, one of the CARES programs the public safety and public health payroll reimbursement program um, as, and it's in regard to the second prorated installment. Those applicants that did receive the 50% of their application are obviously very curious about when the department might advise when the balance of the grant will be issued, or I would say at a minimum when they need to, the amount they will receive so they can set up a receivable for the, uh, year ending 1231. Thanks, Judy. Uh, great question. Um, so with the public safety, public health payroll program, um, we're continuing to work through the audits of those. Um, I apologize. Those have certainly taken much more time than what we ever have anticipated. Um, the recipients have likely, uh, of the, the 50% payment have likely been followed up with some some additional information we need uh, from the Treasury team. Um, we've uh, been working with contractors uh, to assist us with this, uh, and actually we've got a team of about 10 people uh, from Stevens Riemann Group um, that are helping us with this. Um, and you know, we're continuing to make progress, but we're we're not there yet. Um, to comply with the federal uh, grant awards, we do have a preliminary uh, uh, draft, I will say, of of the award amounts, not just the 50% remaining, but the total amount that's on our website. Um, so, you know. Users can uh, find that on our website. A few words of caution: we haven't, um, you know, publicized that heavily yet because, you know, this is a working draft. Um, we were required to post um, that online by uh, January 1st under the CARES Act, uh, so that is on uh, our website. Um, Units will need to, to take into account what they received in the first 50% payment um, to, to get to um, what their second amount might be. Um, this is a draft in that, you know, we're not done with the audits yet. And since this is prorated um, to $200 million, um, you know, if one applicant amount either goes up or down, it changes the proration percentage. So we just want to caution everyone that, you know, this is a working draft. Um, we hope to have uh, another update to that uh, in the next uh, couple weeks. Uh, and we'll probably be, you know, making payments on that. Um, we're hoping mid-February. So um, we're going to get through because it's prorated. Uh, we're going to get through all of the the audits um, and the the continuing monitoring that that we need to do under the the Federal CARES Act. Thanks, Eric. I know um, 
I think from speaking from all three agencies or local government associations, we have been trying to work with Treasury and uh, getting those responses back that you need so that this can move forward. Um, my second question also goes to Eric, and it's in regard to the federal extension that was done in December. Uh, will the state make any changes to any of the existing COVID programs or the reporting, uh, meaning the first responder, hazard pay, premium pay program, the public safety, public health, payroll reimbursement, or the um, CRLGG program? with that extension to December 31st, 2021 by the federal government? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I, I can't speak to all of the programs, but just the three that we manage uh, in Treasury. Um, you know, because of the way the boilerplate is written right now, we're not planning any changes. Um, so for, you know, the hazard pay, um, that program required an application by 930, uh, and um, applicants had to pay their employees by uh, 1229 under the latest amendment. Um, so that, that program is essentially done, and I believe um, with the, the help of the legislature uh, in changing that date, um, I think everybody who uh, received uh, an award was able to to get their payments made to employees. Um, in terms of public safety, public health, um, no changes there either. Um, those are you know for prior year payroll costs, and you know we're prorating to the 200 million and that you know 200 million that was allocated uh, really only covered the first round of that program. Um, you may remember there was a second round that was initially planned, but the funding was exhausted in the first round. So really no changes there. Um, CRLGG, uh, you know, similar uh, story there. Um, we haven't had any changes to the boilerplate. Um, and um, I think most units are continuing to uh, remit those pay, uh, reports uh, in the ONQ system, so. Thanks, Eric. Heather, back to you or to Dino? Um, I'll pass it right over to Dina with the next set of questions. Great. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Judy. Um, great presentation and, and a ton of information here, so thank you for that. Um, so the first question is sort of, I guess it's to Rod, for the CLRGG program, do we know when the forms will be available so that they can provide documentation for? Yes, thank you, Dina. So the CLRGD program, or the Corona Virus Relief Local Government Grants um, program, had three primary documents that local governments had to provide. Uh, the first two are, are documents that just get emailed back to Treasury, um, and those are the opening certification form and the closing certification form. Again, those are just PDF documents, and then they have to be emailed back, and I'll provide the email address here in a second in the chat feature. The other report that was due is the uh, quarterly financial status reports. There were actually two of those reports due, one at the end of October and the other end, end of December. Uh, the good news of the approximately 700 local units of government that received uh, monies under this fund, uh, almost all of them had completed that by the required submission date of 1231. We only have a small handful of local governments, about eight, that didn't complete that reporting. And we've been in touch with each of those uh, local units of government to fill those reports out. That report was due in the ONQ system. That ONQ system did open up today for those eight local units of government that did not submit those reports. And if any local units of government need to do an amended report, they can do so through the remainder of this week. Um, and those are the only reports that, 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 that were due. And again, I'll put the links to where you can ask questions and uh, where you send the opening and, cert and closing certification forms. Thank you, Rod. And and I want to also say thank you for the fact that you called. I know you called us and said, hey, you've got, you know, some members that haven't gotten these reports in. It's the end of the year. So your outreach is commendable. I just wanted to make that known to everybody. The second question, um, and I guess this is for Stephen, but are there any of the grants 
that the local units applied for. So the CRLGG, the first responder, the public safety, public health payroll, I'm not reading all the acronyms, but you get the point. Um, out of all of those, um, are they considered a federal grant requiring a single audit if the municipality expends that $750,000? Yeah, in fact, those three programs are all part of a larger umbrella of a specific federal grant, which is the Coronavirus uh, Relief Fund. That the state received um, approximately $4 billion and divided it up through 140 plus subprograms. And those three are just some of them. And some of uh, local governments will have received money from the state's other um, subprograms within the CRF environment. So, health departments, especially, may have received at the county level other monies. And all of those get grouped together and looked at as one program from an audit perspective. But definitely they need to be counted towards that, that total to see did you get up over that $750,000 mark. Now one of the things that Treasury has kind of agreed to be proactive with is we're going to do the math and look from records that the state has available for entities that received over $750,000 this year from the state for the first time where they've not needed a single audit and try to be proactive and reach out to folks just to make doubly sure they know about it. The risk, however, is the state provided someone 700,000 of federal awards and that's all the state knows about, but they got another 100,000 on the side from some other source, maybe direct from the feds or whatever. And so they could still be over 750 without the state knowing for it. So that's where it's, it's really incumbent on each local government to know the source of the funds they're receiving. And if you're not sure, ask the question, uh, of, are these federal funds? There is a requirement anytime you get federal grants for the pass-through entity to tell you that they are in fact federal so that you have the heads up and can prepare for it. Great, thank you very much for that. I have no further questions. Thank you, Stephen and Dina. Um, finally, Chris, are there any additional questions from today's chat bar for our presenters? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, just as a follow-up to to that last question to Stephen from Dina, I know there were some, some questions I've spoken to some of my members about the PPE that all of the state's clerks received um, during this last election period. Uh, apparently, that uh, that PPE that was received was donated uh, to the state as opposed to uh, as opposed to being purchased with federal dollars. I'm not sure if Treasury has confirmed that or not, but I did have some concern that that PPE may have to be accounted for in the auditing process. Have you guys looked into that at all? I think I can weigh in on this. Uh, that is an interesting situation. When, when you're given money to, to spend on your own and buy PPE, that's clearly a federal award and it's subject to single audit. If PPE is donated to you, even if it's purchased with federal dollars, it's not directly subject to single audit, but if it was donated from federal sources, there's supposed to be a footnote added to a single audit if you have one, just acknowledging that you did receive uh, federally donated PPE. I don't have an answer off the top of my head now whether the, the, the PPE passed through the state or originated with the feds, but the good news is it won't be subject to single audit testing regardless. At most, it would be a footnote and we can get clarification on that, make sure it's communicated in the future. Awesome, thank you. Uh, in the in the chat box, question came in. Uh, Eric, uh, you might have this answer. Uh, we know we're looking at uh, new federal census data coming in this year, um, sometime this spring, uh, early summer. Has Treasury does Treasury have any information on when that census data is expected, and at what point after that will uh, will the department update the distribution formulas on the per capita basis? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have received, uh, the Census Bureau has put out the preliminary numbers on Michigan, uh, but the final numbers are not yet available. Um, we are planning on updating that um, this uh, late spring and early summer uh, in terms of when that will actually appear in uh, the constitutional revenue sharing uh, payments. I'm not sure if we can follow up with that. Uh, for an estimate of, of what that timing will be. Awesome. And along those lines, as you guys are, are updating your estimates from Friday, 
uh, from the Consensus Revenue Estimate Conference. Uh, as you have the new sales tax data for the year, at what point will you be updating your estimates for uh, constitutional revenue sharing payments on the Treasury website? Yeah, typically we like to do that the day of the um, conference, um, but with the Public Safety, Public Health, and some of the other CARES Act programs we have, we're just running a bit behind. Um, so we probably won't have that until closer to the governor's uh, exec rec. Um, typically we update that um, in January after the consensus conference and then also after the governor's executive recommendation. So um, we probably uh, won't have have the time and capacity to get to that until closer to the, the governor's uh, budget. Okay, great. And one last one, this Rod, this is for you and probably for a uh, maybe some follow-up. I know the department, the Treasury in the past has pulled in uh, some of the other state agencies on some of the federal stimulus uh, that they've been managing. Uh, we have had a question as part of the December uh, stimulus that the feds did. There was an extension of the federal work share program uh, under unemployment. And, you know, the question that came in was just related to uh, is the state acknowledging that? Is there anything that the state needs to do to authorize a local unit that may want to utilize work share again as a as a cost saving measure similar to what the state did? Um, I'm not sure if I know the answer to that one, Chris. Well, and yeah, and I think this would just be one where I think if the uh, as you guys have in the past done some interaction with your other other agencies, if if that inquiry could be put in and, and maybe shared and, and our organization can, can share that, uh, that would be helpful information. Definitely, definitely. We can do that. That's all I have. Thank you, Chris. We'll take those questions and um, get additional information, but we have reached the end of our webinar. We hope that all attendees have found this information presented during this webinar valuable and the information useful to each of your communities. We want to thank each of our speakers and our partners, MML, MTA, and MAC, for participating in today's presentation. The PowerPoint presentation and the recording from today's webinar will be available on Treasury's COVID-19 updates for local governments and school districts webpage by tomorrow. Finally, we encourage each attendee to participate in the survey following today's presentation. This survey will be used to generate ideas for future webinars and ensure we are discussing topics important to you. The department is committed to collaborating and providing communities with resources, tools, and information to move forward. On behalf of our presenters and partners, we want to thank you for joining us today at our 10th COVID-19 Updates and Resources for Local Government webinar series. This concludes today's webinar presentation. Have a wonderful day and stay safe. This has been a production of the Michigan Municipal League. For more information on our programs and services, please visit www.nml.org and join us for the next episode of We Love Where You Live.